Here we go. This is Tokyo's brand manager, Ian Harvey. I have a huge treat for you today. You know those most interesting men in the world advertisements that the beer brand Dos Equis does? Okay, I have a true candidate for this title. Anyone who races the Boulder Mountain Tour, Yellowstone Rendezvous, or World Masters knows or knows of Charlie French. This is one of the most interesting and inspirational people that I know. Charlie is currently 94 years old. He started Nordic skiing around 1975 when he was about 49 years old. Since then, Charlie has participated in 45 Boulder Mountain Tour Nordic ski races. He dominates any age group competition that he competes in and has for many years. This includes both the national and international level, having had won as many World Masters titles as he wants to compete in at both Nordic ski and triathlon and anything else he wants to win. I guess he has five world titles in triathlon, 12 in Nordic ski racing, and has national cycling time trial age group records as well as Ironman triathlon records. Basically, this man wins anything and everything he wants to. In his 90s, he still races annually in the Boulder Mountain Tour and the Bogus Basin Hill Climb, a famously difficult road bike race up a mountain above Boise, Idaho. After competing in age groups younger than his in international masters competitions and winning regularly, they finally created a 90 plus age group for him, which in itself is amazing. Charlie is a also a famous personality innovator for Scott USA and has lived an amazing life. For example, he made the revolutionary aero bars that Greg LeMond won the 1989 Tour de France with in such legendary fashion. You don't wanna miss this story. Charlie, I am truly honored to be able to do this interview and bring your story to thousands of people. Thank you for being here with me today. My pleasure. Super. You were born near St. Louis, Missouri in 1926, three years before the Great Depression started. Shortly after you moved with your family to Southern California, your early years were spent swimming, surfing and working on and driving cars and motorcycles. Um, is that right? And can you please comment on, on your childhood growing up in Southern California, please? Yeah, yeah. I was born and lived in St. Louis till I got into junior high school. When I was in grammar school, I was a speed skating competition and swimming competition. And then in high school, I just swam competition. And then while I was in high school, I decided to build up a roadster for drag racing. So I went to the junkyard and bought all the parts and started putting it together. And then in high school, I figured I was never gonna go to college. So I majored in machine shop, auto shop and wood shop. So I'd take all these parts to school and work on them and machine them. And eventually I built this uh, roadster that uh, I drove until I went in the Navy, so. And is that the same roadster you got in a lot of trouble with, or did you have other vehicles? Uh, just that one. That's the only one. That took everything I had. <laughs> you want to tell us the story about joining the Navy, please? The circumstances under which you joined the Navy? Uh, uh, yeah, when I got the car finished, uh, I used to go out at night and drag race with other guys on the back streets around Santa Monica. And it, I ended up with a few tickets. And uh, the last ticket I got, then uh, I decided to join the Navy. And, but I was 17 years old and I needed my mother's permission. So I went to her and said, well, you signed for me to go to the Navy. And she said, where do I sign? So <laughs> she, was, she was happy to get rid of me. 
I know what you're talking about. I joined the Marine Corps when I was 17, and my parents had to sign on the dotted line for me as well. Um, but that's a good story. I like that. So you you went to basic training, and then you served in the USS Cleveland, which served in the South Pacific during World War II. Um, and so you enlisted in the Navy when you were 17 and in 1944, which of course was during World War II. So the USS Cleveland served in the South Pacific. You worked below deck as a machinist on the USS Cleveland, which was a light cruiser with a crew of 1,200 sailors. The famous General Douglas MacArthur was the commander of Allied forces in the Pacific theater. Can you please tell us about the interaction you have with General MacArthur and the exchange of gifts that you initiated? Yeah, um, we were in the Philippines and uh, and he got involved in wanting to go and do an invasion on Barneo. And so he came aboard our ship and we took him to Barneo uh, to do this invasion. And then, so we made him a set of ashtrays out of sh shells that the guns on the ship had. So I made this set of ashtrays and engraved them and did all this machining on them. And uh, we gave them to him and he, he told the captain, he said, thank the boys and give them this corn cob pipe. So we just threw the pipe over the, the side and that was the end of it. <laughs> That's pretty funny. We were not impressed. <laughs> not impressed with the corn cob pipe. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Charlie, do you have any other recollections from your time in the Navy that you'd like to share? Uh, no, you know, I was, I was a kid, you know, I, I didn't know anything. And at 17 years old, you just kind of walk around with your eyes open and trying to figure out what's going on. So I, you know, I learned a lot and, uh, we, we were in combat in quite a few places and, uh, and we started in the Philippines and went to Okinawa and then eventually went to Japan. So it was a, quite an experience for me and uh, I'm glad I don't have to do it again. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for your service. Yeah, Yo, thank you, you're welcome. <laughs> you too. <laughs> Post-World War II, you returned to Southern California and studied at Long Beach State University, working towards toward a degree in mechanical engineering. Partway through your studies, you moved to England and worked for Douglas Aircraft on a missile program for four years. At this point, you started skiing in the winter at the famous resort Kitzbühel in Austria, home of the Hanenkamm Downhill, which was just held recent, last weekend. Do you have any comment on your time in England with Douglas Aircraft and of skiing at Kitzbühel? Well, when I, uh, I moved to England uh, with my wife and two kids and uh, and worked there and then I looked at my passport one day and found I'd been on the continent 21 times while living in England, just primarily going skiing. And then when my, my time was up with Douglas and the missile program, I took a leave of absence and spent the winter in Kitzbühel and skied every day, so. That's great. I bet that was a lot of fun and uh, a big change of pace for, I know you skied a lot back in, I guess it must've been a big bear or where, where did you, uh, you live in Southern California? Southern California. I skied at, at Mount Waterman, which is a real small little family owned area. 
and I started out on ski patrol and then eventually became a ski instructor and I instructed there and also at Mount Baldy in also in Southern California. Yeah. At any rate, Kitsby was a, a far cry from some of these smaller resorts in Southern California. <laughs> yeah. 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 If the chairlift stopped, you just jumped off the chair. It was, no, it was only about six feet to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you then returned to Long Beach State for a bit, and then you worked for Litten Industries in Germany, Italy, and Belgium, all the while taking weekend ski trips to Austria. In the 60s, Litten was one of the largest conglomerates in the United States. They were involved in everything from electronic navigation to shipbuilding to frozen food to making appliances to office equipment. What did you do for Litten? What can you tell us about this time in your life? Well, I, I left Douglas and started to work for Litten to become a field service rep on an F-104 uh, fighter aircraft program in Europe. So I went to work with Litton and then moved to Hamburg to train myself on the on the navigational system that was in these airplanes. And then I uh, eventually became a tech rep in Italy for a year. And uh, then after I got through in Europe, I came back to States and became a project manager at Litton Industries in Woodland Hills, California. Super. Um, can you tell us anything else about uh, your time in Belgium, Germany, and and wherever else it was that you were working for Litton? I'm uh, trying to remember the yeah. thing. In Italy also? Yeah, it, well, I started out living in Hamburg for about two or four months, and I would go into the factory and, and study the system, the navigational system and learn about it. And then when I felt I was qualified that I moved to Italy, uh, originally lived in Milano and then moved to Como and spent a year there uh, living on Largo Maggiore and working at the Italian Air Force Base. And uh, then after uh, the year was up there, I came back to the States and started working in project management, Southern California. Those are some beautiful areas. Como is kind of the, where the jet setters, rich and famous, uh, spend their time in, in Northern Italy. But Lago Maggiore, do you remember what part? Uh, was it the Northern part? Was it- Yeah, it was, a, it was a town called Arona. And it's about 60, 60 kilometers from Milano. It's on the southern part of the lake, uh, sort of in the middle. And um, it, I had a condominium on the lake with a tennis court, and I'd drive my car. I had a lotus. I'd drive my car into the lake to wash it, and it, it was a pretty sweet spot. <laughs> and so one beautiful thing about that area specifically is it's, it's very Mediterranean in its, in its um, climate, You've got palm trees and it's warm, and but you're not very far at all from the tunnel that takes you from Domodossa, Italy, into Brig, Switzerland, and you're in yeah. the, in the Swiss Alps or in the Italian Alps, and and there's some incredible skiing opportunities. I imagine you went skiing up there a lot. Yeah, I skied uh, in the winter. I would drive to Saint Moritz and I'd drive to a few Italian ski areas, and I would 
you know, if I could get a long weekend, I I always went skiing somewhere. So, uh, yeah, it, it was fantastic skiing. So, one more question, just to follow up on that. That uh, F one hundred four is nicknamed the Starfighter, and they they called it the. I think they call it a missile with a man in it because they were so fast and kind of bullet shaped. What did you do with those 104s? Was it the navigation system that you were working on? Yeah, Lytton had developed an inertial navigation system and it was the first system that didn't require outside input and it didn't radiate anything. So essentially this system was a platform that told you where you were at all times and then you could put into the system where you wanted to go and it would fly you to that target and then you'd just hit the home button it would fly you back home so this platform the system which was an inertial navigation system it was used in all these these uh, aircraft and what had happened as part of a nato operation uh, the europeans wanted to get the technology of the aircraft the Americans had. So they made an agreement that the Lockheed aircraft would give all the drawings to four different countries in Europe, and each country would build their own airplanes in their own factories with Lockheed's drawings. And then they would also train their own Air Force people to fly the airplanes. So Germany had theirs, Holland did, uh, and Italy, and we worked, you know, right close to the Italian border uh, or a Swiss border uh, in Northern Italy where the Air Force Base was. So we had a couple of squadrons, F-104s, and uh, the it Italian pilots would come to the States and get trained on jets, and then they'd come back and, uh, and then start flying on their own F-104s. So, so we were there primarily to keep the systems going and keep updating them because it was you know, like so many things in the early days of electronics, there were a lot of modifications and a lot of stuff you had to keep tweaking to keep them going. So that was our job and to teach Italians how to use them and how to maintain the systems. So so you were installing the systems and then you were servicing them and you were also training them on how to use them. Correct. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. My sister was installing software similar to what you're talking about on submarines. And, and she'd travel the whole oh. East Coast going up and down and, and installing software on submarines for years. So I, I know what you're talking about to a point, but that, that sounds like a real adventure. Yeah. Okay. So then you returned to Southern California and continued to work in the aerospace industry and skied or surfed regularly on the weekends. After a while that you decided to, and this is your quote, bail out of society and move to a ski area. When you say bail out of society, move to a ski area, I understand what you mean, but I'd, I'd love to hear you elaborate on this. Yeah, well, I, I was a, a, a board surfer, so I surfed every single weekend, all summer long, and then I would stop surfing and start skiing the next weekend when Mammoth would get snow, and I'd ski all winter long. And one day I realized I've never spent a weekend at home where I was living. So I said, I'm going to move to a ski area. So I looked at all the ski areas in the West. I looked at Aspen, Vail, Squaw, Mammoth, Sun Valley. And, and I finally decided that Sun Valley was my choice. So uh, 
I decided to move to Sun Valley and um, I had a choice of teaching skiing, being on a ski patrol or working in Pete Lane's ski store. So I took Pete Lane's because I could ski six days a week and I wouldn't have to ski every day. So that's how it started. <laughs> you, you had a friend named Dick Barrymore who used to shoot ski movies in Sun Valley. Did he also influence your decision to go there? Pardon? You had a friend named Dick Barrymore who used to film ski movies. Did he yeah. influence your decision to go to Sun Valley as well? Well, not really. Um, it, yeah, I, I did a, a, a film for Barrymore when I was in Kitzbühel, and that's where I got to know it. And Bob Smith was filming the cameraman for, for Dick. So they did a whole series of, uh, of deep powder skiing in Kitzbühel of me. And then that night, it was deep snow. And every turn, the snow would come up over your thighs and come up to the bottom of your goggles, goggles and fill them up. And you'd pull your goggles away and let the snow out. So we're sitting there at dinner with Bob, and I said, he says, there ought to be a better way to make a goggle. And I said, simple, we'll just make a thermal pane window. So the next morning we went out, we were living in Kitzbühel. We went out, bought 20 pair of Carrera lenses, a razor blade and some acetone. And we cut the centers out of 18 lenses. So we made a spacer. We glued them all together and then put it in a goggle frame, taped up all events and they fogged up walking to the barn. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's how the thermal goggles started, and then no so Bob and I would ski. Yeah, Bob and I ski every weekend together in Kitzbühel, and then he was a orthodontist in San Rafael, and he'd take the winters off, and he'd share to practice with a guy who was a sailor. So Bob worked six months. So every winter he took off, and he would just come to Europe. So we'd ski every weekend. And then he said, well, I got to go back to work. What do we do with the goggles? I said, you take it. I'll never do anything with it. So I got a free pair of goggles every year. <laughs> wow. That's a good story. So how long was it after you arrived in Sun Valley that you started running marathons and then riding bikes and doing triathlons and then eventually Nordic skiing? Well, when I moved to Sun Valley, as, as I mentioned, I started working at Pete Lane's and that, that when the winter was getting over, I was gonna, I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought I'd open a small engine repair shop or work car shop or something. So I ran into a guy named Jim Tobin, and he was the credit manager for, for Ed Scott at Scott USA. And he said, well, let me talk to Scotty and see if he'll hire you. So I gave him a resume, and they hired me to develop the ski boot at Scott and so that's that's how it all started and uh, from there it just um, you know it, 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 after we got the ski boot going then we decided to do a motorcycle boot and then we did ski goggles paintball goggles motorcycle goggles ski poles and grips shock forks for bikes and, and eventually the handlebars so. <laughs> so so that that's how I ended up at Scott how many years did you work for Scott USA? You started in 71 and I heard you worked for something like 45 years, but what's the, what's the number, the real number? Well, I, I took a, I think maybe a year or two off. Uh, I left Scott uh, cause they were moving to Utah and I, I didn't want to do that. So 
I, I quit and I ran a bus company here in Ketchum. And then I went to work for another company uh, doing uh, uh, power line installation and, and stuff like that. So I did that and then I went back to Scott and I was there until two years ago. And uh, they finally got rid of me when I think I was 91 or 90 or somewhere in there. So that's around 45 years, depending on how you count or don't yeah. count those years. Yeah. Um, I guess since we're talking about your time at Scott, part of your legacy was helping develop road cycling aero bars. You ended up bending and forming the actual aero bars that Greg LeMond won the Tour de France so famously uh, with so famously in 1989. Do you have any stories related to that? Well, it, it, how it all started, Boone and Boone Lennon and I were driving back from a bicycle race and he said, I've got this idea for some handlebars. And so he explained his idea and Boone at that time was a coach for the US ski team and he was working with the athletes in the wind tunnel and he working on the aero position and that's for a race that lasts 60 seconds. So he started looking at it and he said, I, I, I think we should look at this. So he made a set of prototype wooden handlebars and we clamped them on our bikes with U-bolts. So he and I went up a fairly long hill in South of Ketchum, Timmerman Hill, and uh, we were rolled on together and at the bottom we were dead even. So we rode back up, put the bars on his bike, rolled down, he was six bike lengths ahead of me. So we went back up, put them on my bike, I was six bike lengths ahead of him. That was our wind tunnel test. So we said, this works. So that's how it started. And then at that time I was at Scott and Boone was, was doing carpentry work, construction work. So we, he said, well, what should I do with him? I said, well, why don't you see if Scott will, will develop a program with you so you can get royalties and, and, and some money up front and so on. So that's what happened. So at that point, as we started developing the bars, we looked at making them out of fiberglass, out of carbon fiber, out of aluminum. And we figured out that with aluminum, everybody could afford them. If we went with the carbon fiber, it'd be so expensive that they would have a pretty small market. So we went in the direction of aluminum and we bought conduit benders, hickeys, and we started out using rigid conduit. And we had been bars all day, every day of all these different things. And then we'd go out and try them and, you know, and then come back and change them. And it, just, it was a lot of fun. So, yeah. And then Boone was, because he was a Cat 2 road racer, he was nationally ranked. So he was a, a very good cyclist. And uh, so when he got the bars going, then he he would take them to the to the bike guys and they, they wouldn't touch him. They said, nah, we don't want those. But so we took him to triathlon guys. One guy tried him and says, yeah. And he beat like four guys he'd never beaten before in a triathlon. So the next Monday, four or five guys called, we want bars. By the end of the season, every triathlete had a set of bars. And and the bike guys still wouldn't use them until Lamont put him on his bike was, was the first time that road racers ever decided they would try him. You know, so, and then for me, I, I put a set on when I went and did the Ironman in 86. And that was the first time they'd ever been used anywhere in competition. And then the following year I went to the, 
the national time trial championships and the same thing. I was the only one there with the bars. And after that, people started uh, thinking they might work. So. And, and you set records in both of those events, which is remarkable, of course. Yeah. <clears throat> and I, I was thinking, in a sense, you didn't just beat people with your body in those events, but you also beat people with your mind because you developed the bars with Boone and you bent them yourself and tested them. So that must've been very satisfying. Yeah, it, you know, my whole job at Scott was the perfect job. I was designing things that I like to play with. So every day I was either doing goggles, poles, boots, and it was always something that I, I could go out and test that day and then come back and change the design. And with a ski boot, one year I had 90 changes from when we started till we finished in just one year. Wow. <laughs> that, that must have ticked the production people off. <laughs> well, we, we weren't in production yet. So that was oh. the pre-production. And then cool. at the end of that year, we, we decided to go into production. Yeah. You didn't, you didn't grow up doing endurance sports, right? You swam some, but outside of that, you didn't ride a bike or run or I don't know about running, but yeah. you didn't ride a bike or, or Nordic ski, for example, until you got to catch them. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I grew up, you know, and then after I got out of the Navy, I started racing motorcycles and I raced on a track, half mile track, and I did hare and hounds and, and then started surfing. And none of these were were pain sports. And then, uh, as I say, when when I moved to Sun Valley, I moved primarily to ski bumps because I was a, a just love bump skiing. And, you know, as I mentioned, I just, I'd ski every day and I'd go maybe hour or two hours at lunchtime. And then one day I just decided that I wasn't getting any better at this. I got to find a new sport. So that's how I got into cross country. And that's the first pain sport I ever got into. And I figured out there's two kinds of people. There's there's pain sport people and and thrill sport people. And so I switched. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I've been there ever since. Do you remember your first Boulder Mountain uh, Boulder Mountain tour? And was that your first ski race that you've ever done? Well, they had used to have a couple of small races out. Um, on the Bigwood golf course. And that's where I started. And I, you know, I'd do two or three races and then, you know, I'd fall four or five times in every race. And, and then it, it, when the first bowlers, it was cl classic only and they set the track for the bowler and that was it. And then they wouldn't set it again until next year. So when the bowler came, you could ski it two or three times and then it, you wait till next year to do the next one. So, you know, the first, few years were all classic you know and then as you remember then they got marathon skating and eventually full skating and when skating came in we have a you know a hockey team here and these guys are all ex-pros and these guys just jumped on cross-country skis and just skated away from everybody <laughs> it was amazing <laughs> yeah cool you estimated that you've done about 45 boulder mountain tour events yeah, yeah, but and it's somewhere in that area because I think I I missed one or two at the most, and uh, 
And so, yeah, I don't know why or how, but it just, I like the challenge, you know. Was there, I'm sure you have some great memories. Was there any one race that especially stood out to you that you would like to share with us? Well, you know, you remember the bad ones. You remember the awful ones when the snow was horrible and the track was all messed up. But uh, I, I think one race, I think I was somewhere in my lower 60s and, and I did an hour and 26 minutes and I thought, wow. And, and you know, it wasn't me. It was the snow condition. It was just that perfect, perfect time. And as you know, I mean, when the snow's fast, everybody's good. <laughs> but, yeah. You've competed in five different World Masters, uh, Masters World Cup years. So within each one, there are a number of events, of course. And you have won... I think 12 Nordic Masters World Championship titles. Winning a world title is, of course, memorable in itself, but are there any special memories you have from World Masters that you would like to share with us? Well, I, I think the, the first um, uh, cross country World Masters was in McCall, and I had no idea you know, what was involved in it, and I just get to the starting line and all these guys from foreign countries. And I went, wow. And you heard all these things about the Europeans pushing you off the, out of the way and this and that. And, and it, so I was pretty intimidated. And then when the awards came up, I, then I thought, this is pretty neat. You know, it was, it was very impressive to me. And uh, so each one is, of course is different because this is a different country and they have different ways of doing things. And so it's, it's always a thrill to uh, to compete and because it's a different country and different courses and everything so it's it's just a lot of fun you know one fun thing about world masters is getting to meet competitors from other countries and after a while you become friends have you got have you got friendships from competitors from other countries over the years and maybe maybe the, those numbers are being whittled down as you continue to age uh, oddly enough, the only competitors I ended up sort of befriending are, were American guys huh. that were from other parts of the country. But the guys I raced in Europe, one guy was a Russian, and he did not speak one word of English. And, uh, and another guy was an Italian, and we got where we could chat pretty good, and, and that was kind of fun. But, uh, so, yeah, and but you can see – you know, like a couple of times I was there with Muffy Ritz and, and all these girls from all over the world come up to her and they're good friends. And I thought, now that's great, you know, and it was, it was kind of fun. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Charlie, I want to visit your experience, one of your experiences at Mont Ventoux with you. When you were yeah. 85 years old, you climbed Mont Ventoux. This is a legendary climb that is often featured in the Tour de France and is known as one of the most grueling climbs of the Tour de France. At 85, you rode your bike to Mont, Mont, Mont Ventoux and then up it to the top and then back down. You rode 66 miles with a total of over 7,000 vertical feet climbed and against headwinds for which Mont Ventoux is famous for at 85 years old. This is an astounding achievement. Can you please talk about that day with us? Well, 
I have a friend that lives here in Sun Valley and in, in France, and uh, he's done Mount Ventoux, I think, 13 times. So, uh, and he's he's just a kid. He's like 74 or five years, 76 years old. But uh, so he, he said, you want to go ride? I said, yeah. So, and it was fun. I mean, it was great fun. But like you say, once you get above tree line and you, you just – hear the wind whistling through the guardrails, you know, and the singing sound, <laughs> you know, it's going to be work. But, uh, and uh, the, the fun was that, I mean, there's every nationality in the world there. I mean, groups of two, three, five guys, it'd be from anywhere, New Zealand, Germany, everywhere. And it, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, and I just, I, I'm a good endurance athlete, but I'm not, overly fast so i just kind of knew it was gonna be a long day and uh, but it, and you know it's it's a challenge so you 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 got a, a lot of adrenaline to keep you going so yeah that's for sure that's amazing congratulations what a feat Charles, yeah. you, you continue to ski race at the boulder mountain tour and ride the bogus basin hill climb even in your 90s and today Richard Feldman is probably the most successful master cyclist in the history of the United States with nine world titles and 12 U.S. national titles. He lives in Ketchum, Idaho, and he owns and runs Durant Cycle Works. For the ski fans on this podcast, Katie Feldman skis for the Sun Valley Ski Education XC Gold Team, and he is her dad. He said about you, quote, Charlie sets the example of what it means to be an athlete. He is passionate, knowledgeable, and friendly. Also, as a 90-plus-year-old who is still out on the trails in the winter almost every day and on the roads in the summer, what more could you look up to or look forward to as an athlete, end quote? This is great praise from another legendary athlete. Can you please talk about what it means to be an athlete and how you were able to continue at this advanced age? Well, I... Obviously, the reason I'm an athlete is because I enjoy doing it. And like you, if there's a race somewhere out there, you train a lot harder. And if you don't have a race, just like now, this is the first time in my life in 40 years I haven't anything to train for. And it's harder. You know, you just somehow do it a little bit less. So I, I, I think, like, when I did the Ironman, I think the greatest satisfaction was – how much I'd train because, you know, you just do these unbelievable miles and, you know, in all three disciplines. So to me, it's a, it's a package. It's the fun of competing. And if you do well, it's a result of how much you've trained and how well and how smart you've trained. So it, I just enjoy that whole, the whole package. Super. Charlie, um, you and I are good friends with Muffy Ritz. Yep. One Muffy's famous for a lot of different things. She's an incredible person, successful athlete, gritty, done some amazing adventures. But from my perspective, another thing she should be famous for is replacing her body parts. She's got the go-go oh, yeah. gadget knees and shoulders and hips. I mean, you know, it seems like every time I see her, she's coming out of an operation replacing something. Do you still have all of your original parts? I still have all original. And 
you know, I, I mean, everybody I know my age, they've had body parts replaced. They all have AFib. They all got some something going on. And, and I've had one heart problem where I got tachycardia and I just take pills and everything's fine. I can't tell a difference at all. And I had prostate cancer and they just gave me pills for that. So I had no surgery. And so both of those, I have, they're totally benign. I have no effects from them at all. So yeah, it's, uh, it's just, to me, it's, it's luck. You know, you're lucky you've been born with a body, you do it. And, uh, for me, I'm lucky I've got the energy to want to go out and, and do these things, you know, and it's not something that you you consciously want to go do. You just, it's it's there and you, you do it, you know, so, yeah. At, at 95 years old, you've been doing endurance sports for many, many years, somewhere on 45, 50 years. But the reality is you started very late in the game. Do you attribute some of your... Um, not needing to replace your knees and your hips and your shoulders because of your late start with endurance sports? Is that, do you think that helped? I I think it does. You know, I just sort of look at guys that, you know, like when you were competing, you were a lot stronger, you were a lot faster and you give it your all. And you, and I think as a young person, if in the prime of your life, if you're, all out in a sport, you're asking the absolute maximum of every joint, of every muscle. And so I think there's a possibility that you may be doing some damage uh, as you get older. You might find some effects from that where, you know, when you start competing at 45, 50 years old, the intensity is so much less than it is with a young person. So I think you probably don't quite put quite as much stress on your body as you do when you're in your 20s and your 30s so that makes a lot of sense do you have any body maintenance secrets or habits that you uh, believe in no you know i'm i'm pretty middle of the road i i, I eat everything and i uh, you know I, 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 now I, I work out in the gym and I didn't do that until I was probably 60 something. And everything you read says you get over, you got to, you got to get in the gym. So I first time in my life, I went in a gym and I thought, Oh, I hope this doesn't work, you know, cause I didn't want to be in there. But so now I still go. And, uh, but my diet, you know, I try and eat well. And when I was in high school, I just grew up on hamburgers, Milky Ways. I never ate fruit. I never ate vegetables. You know, I had the worst diet in the world and, you know, and I'm still here, but now I, you know, I eat a lot of salads and, you know, a lot of fruit and, and uh, you know, everything that you read, you should eat. I try and eat most of it. And, you know, I, I used to always have a glass of wine every night at dinner. And then when I was training for the Ironman, I thought oh, I better stop. So I, didn't have a glass of wine for like seven or eight months. And then when it was over, I just said, I don't even need this. You know? And now I, I, I only have a glass of wine if it's socially, otherwise I don't drink at all. And it, it's not something I consciously felt I had to do. It just sort of happened that way. So. So you mentioned going to the gym. First question is with COVID-19, 
I know you re very recently got your vaccine. First off, how was that experience getting the COVID-19 vaccine and how do you feel? Fine. I had the, nothing went changed. Uh, I could feel my shoulder just a little teeny bit. And when you'd move it a certain way, you knew something happened, but that was it. There was no, no effects at all. And, you know, and I haven't gone to the gym since, uh, since it started. So at home, I, you know, do push-ups and squats and stuff. And, and I sw still swim. I swim two, three days a week. And, um, and I used to do a master's workout and I, I finally got so slow. It was just a waste of time. So now I do my own workout, and, you know, I'll swim for an hour and, do all the stuff but um and i i think that's good i you know swimming you can swim as hard as you can and get out of the water and nothing hurts nothing's tired and you can eat everything in sight it's just a it's a great workout <laughs> so now that you got the vaccine are you going to be able to uh get out and be more social as well as go to the gym oh yeah 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 i'll go back in the gym for sure and uh, you know i'd because my cross country this year, well, each year it gets it gets a little weaker, and this year was quite a bit weaker than last. And and I don't know if it's because I wasn't going in the gym or or it's just that much changing with age, you know. But uh, I I mean now before I could double pull forever and never get tired, you know. And I did that, you know, the Ingaden, and I double pulled the whole thing. It, that was like four years ago. And uh, so now I double pull and I got to stop, you know, and, and sk skating two years ago, I, I just got where I couldn't get up a hill without stopping partway. And I, this sucks, you know, but I, and oddly enough, the last thing to go is I guess my core, because, you know, I stride, I, I can only really stride like a hundred yards and I think I'm going to die, you know, so, but you know, with classic, I can just walk up the hills and double pull and sort of be almost okay. So, <laughs> so I know in recent years, you've been focusing more on double pull because there's amazing gains to be made when you work on your upper body strength and double pull. Can you talk about that a little bit, please? Well, you know, when I started watching these guys in Europe in the classic races, and you realize that the only time they stride is going up a cliff and the rest of the time they're double pulling everything and everywhere. And, and then as the striding got more and more limited for me, uh, the double pulling didn't, I could still maintain my strength and the endurance. So I just, well, originally I just thought it would be faster. So I, that's where I started going into it. And then as I realized the changes in my body strength that it seems to be the last thing to go. <laughs> so. Well, I have an interesting question for you. Um, you've done a lot of races in your life, triathlons, bike races, running, and of course, a lot of ski races. And one thing you said a while back is that you still get nervous before the start. And I'm fascinated by that because you've done so many races. What is the source of your nervousness before your starts? I, I wish I knew. <laughs> I, I, I enter a race. I'm the only one in my age group. Because all I got to do is finish. I get nervous. <laughs> uh, that's great, though. 
as far as I'm concerned, it's part of living. Like that's th that anxiousness and the excitement, and then you accomplish something, and then you have this feeling of satisfaction. That's wonderful. You still get such a rush out of it. I yeah, I, I, I can't believe it. You know, I keep well my whole life when I was racing motorcycles, I would get so nervous. I'd race at night in a in a stadium, and I'd get so nervous I couldn't eat breakfast or lunch or dinner, and and I. And then I, so now, and I, before I race, I well, I'm very nervous. Just relax, but I can't. <laughs> That's great, though. Yeah. So, um, Bob Rosso is a friend of yours. He's the owner of the Elephant's Perch, which is an iconic outdoor store in Ketchum, Idaho. Bob is not only a friend of mine as well, but someone that I have looked up to for many years as a great example of how to live well, contribute to society, and make your mark. And he said the following about you. Charlie is a downright full tilt, amazing human being. He does not worry about anything. He just goes out there and has a great time ski racing, bike racing, creating and inventing all sorts of outdoor things, etc. I have always been amazed at his tenacity. If you simply talk with him, you will quickly get the feeling of what an amazing man he is. So I would love to know, Charlie, more about your approach to life in general. Can you please talk about that? Well, I yeah, I think uh, I've always had goals. Even when I was a kid, I, I can think. And even today, just like you, it, you know, besides getting up and eating breakfast, you're either going to go cross country or you're going to do something. So my whole life, I've always had goals for every day. And and I think that keeps you going because you accomplish a goal and you have a satisfaction, and so you're you're always up, you know. And and I noticed in competing that I learned very early on in triathlons that if you have a positive attitude, you go twice as fast, you know. And luckily for me, I was a terrible swimmer. And I was a ex-bike racer. So in the triathlons, I would just pass 40, 50, 60 people on a bike, you know, and that just gets you so pumped, you know, that and but if you get down on yourself, you just forget it, you know, because everything falls apart. So I've been lucky that somehow that attitude still prevails. So yeah. wise wise words and and I think we can see the fruits of that um, life perspective, which is really positive. And it seems like having that positive outlook makes even more of a difference on tougher days. You know, bad weather or some kind of mishap or misfortune makes even more of a difference, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's just like, you know, when, when there's no snow and I, I would ski on a mountain and everybody said, how was it? I said, it's great. I mean, every day is great. And you you always figure out how to make, you know, just like you, you go cross country. It may not be perfect, but you have a good day. You have fun. And it's nice that you, you're born with that outlook on doing things, you know. So thank you. Uh, along these lines of your perspective, I want to make it easier for listeners to understand your unique approach to life in case, because I don't think the vision is truly there yet. Let me ask you a question, Charlie. How many cars do you have? 
<laughs> uh, right now I have two cars. I have a an Audi S5 coupe, which is a 2018, and it's a, and that's my family car. And then a couple years ago, I, I bought a Lamborghini, and uh, so that's that I drive in the summertime, and I drive it every day. I don't leave it in the garage and polish it and stuff. So. It, you know, usually in, in catching my ride my bike everywhere, but now I have a hard time whether I want to ride my bike or get in the Lamborghini. So, and I'll keep it until I can't get out of it, which could be very soon. <laughs> so you were 93, 92 or 93 when you bought the Lamborghini. I, yeah. So was it this past summer that you did that triathlon in Southern California? Yeah. Yeah. So I hear that you jumped in your Lamborghini with all your triathlon gear and you had the bike mounted on a suction mount on the rear window and you drove, this is a 95 year old, you drove from Ketchum, Idaho to Southern California, did a triathlon and of course spent the night and then drove back. This is not normal behavior for a 95 year old, but I'm so grateful for your example. Can you please talk about this adventure? <laughs> well, Somehow, I, I guess I started all my triathlons in Southern California, and there's still one of the better places to, to do them. And there's one triathlon in, in, near San Diego and Mission Bay, and it's a great triathlon because you never lose sight of the water. You swim, you get on your bike, you're riding by the water, and, and you run. So it's sort of a favorite triathlon, and, and I have a son that lives down in San Clemente. So... I decided to go do that triathlon and um, there's a company in Florida that makes suction cup bike racks and I thought that can't work, you know, so I bought the rack and put it on the deck in the window of the, of the Lamborghini and stuck it on and put my bike on and I think it said it's good for 85 miles an hour or something. I think I was going 100 and some and I kept looking at my bike to see if it was still there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I, it's just a great triathlon, and uh, just like you, if you've got something, an event, you you train more and you have more fun. So, so I, I have a question. You have no aversion to going fast in your in your Lamborghini. When you're going, let's say, let's just pick a hundred. It's a round number. When you're going a hundred in your Lamborghini, that doesn't feel very fast, does it? No, it unfortunately after you get about seventy or eighty, it, it just seems to get more and more stable. It just it just seems to sit on the ground and not want to go anywhere. It's just it's it's scary. It feels so good. <laughs> Have you ever gotten any tickets in, with your Lamborghini driving around in your Lamborghini? You ever got any tickets, speeding tickets? I've been stopped, but I haven't gotten any tickets. So, I got stopped once because it had no. No front license plate. <laughs> Did you ever get stopped for speeding and talk your way out of it? Uh, no, no, no. I, I had, no I'm, I'm pretty good now. Okay. It didn't I sound used like to be a very about triple digits there going down to California. <laughs> the, the point I wanted uh, to make. I'm, sorry? Yeah. Please continue. Charlie, the point I wanted to make is when you're going fast in a Lamborghini, let's say 110 in a Lamborghini, 
I used to have this old van and you know, it was one of those old vehicles where you could turn the steering wheel about a third of the way before you, before anything would happen, you know, and um, yeah. driving 65 and that thing is about a hundred in a sports car or 110 in a sports car in terms of the feeling, you know, yeah, so, right. <laughs> in a Lamborghini, I figured that's probably like 140 or something compared to 60 in my old, in my old van, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, they, they claim it's supposed to go 192 or something like that, but I'm not trying it. <laughs> right. well, let, me, let me ask you a couple of questions. I know there are a lot of things, but what is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? Well, I can't think of anything. I'm just, just a normal guy, you know, and I, I think back now that and I was sort of a slow learner I you know when I was in in high school I definitely didn't want to go to college and, and when I joined the Navy I didn't even think about trying to get in the in the Navy Air Corps and, and then after I got out of the service I decided that you know it wouldn't be a bad idea to go to school and so and part of that is because my parents, you know, never encouraged those things, but I just felt I was uh, a little slow in realizing what was available to you and what you could do with your life. And so little by little, I've, you know, sort of gotten where I wanted to go, but maybe not as quick as some other people would have, you know, but I don't, I, other than that, I think I'm pretty normal. <laughs> That's fantastic. If you don't mind, I want to I want to say something that's something about yeah. you that might surprise people, and that is your humility. You are an outstanding, amazingly interesting, and very successful person in so many different aspects of life, and it's such a pleasure to listen to you refer to yourself as a normal guy because um, it would be pretty normal for you not to be humble and to be very proud of yourself and to see your humility and just your regular guyness is. Is so rewarding and I love it. So that's great. That's surprising. <laughs> so another question, do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Uh, not really. I just, you know, I kind of do what I want to do. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I am close to my family and uh, I like friends and I like to do things, I I like to go out to dinner. I like to go places and see things. And like I think I've done six uh, back roads bicycle trips. Uh, last year I went to, to Bali on a back roads trip. Been to Croatia and everywhere. And I enjoy doing stuff like that. You know, so, so I think I'm almost normal. Yeah, so totally normal, except. Can you imagine as a bicycle tour operator, let's say they ride 40, 50 miles a day. And then this 94 year, you were 94 last year, 94 year old guy signs up and says, yeah, count me in, I'm on, I'm on board. And they're like, oh crap, now what do we do? There's no way this guy can do anything. You know, we don't have a wheelchair. How do, how are we gonna accommodate this guy? You know, you're, you're an exceptional person and I love your adventuresome spirit. And, and I, I asked you about the mantra philosophy earlier in our conversation, you uh, expressed how important it has been for you to set goals, both long-term and also on a daily basis and how each day you accomplish your goals and it gives you a feeling of satisfaction and progress. And I'm 
I know that's something that served you well as well. Yeah, yeah, it really has. You know, it's, it's I, I, you know, I'm not a kind of person that sits back and looks at what happened and for what reason. I just do things and hope they come out okay. So, uh, yeah, I've been I've been lucky. So, no complaints. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Well, this has been my pleasure talking with you. Um, Charlie, I'm very grateful that you were willing to give me your time for this interview. I'm sure that those that know you will love listening to this and will be wanting to elaborate on your legend. And those that don't know you are grateful to know about you and would love to meet you. When I am at award ceremonies, especially because that's when we have contact a lot of the time, and they call your name as they always do, and you walk up there and face the crowd, I always think that exactly is how I want to be in my future. You, you're someone that I look up to and I emulate and I hope to follow in your footsteps in every way. Um, so thank you again for this interview and I hope to see you next year at the Boulder Mountain Tour. Thank you. Me too. <laughs>